people who rely even today on Morningstar ratings are really just fooling themselves. There's no informational value in Morningstar's rating system. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And today I'm continuing my discussions with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story at episode six, four, five. Now, Larry deeply understands the world of academic research about investing, especially risk. And today we're going to discuss two chapters from his book, Investment Mistakes, Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. Part one of the book we've already been through, and that's understanding and controlling human behavior and how that is important determinant of investment performance. And now we're starting or continuing into part two, ignorance is bliss. And mistake number 18 and 19 is what we are covering. Mistake number 18 is do you believe your fortune is in the stars? And mistake number 19, do you rely on misleading information? Larry, take it away. Yeah, let's start with the Morningstar one. It's kind of an interesting problem that investors face today, because unlike in the 1950s, let's say, when we had thousands of stocks and about 100 mutual funds, today you have about 3,700, I think, stocks in the U.S. on the exchanges, and you have a multiple of that (laughs) in mutual funds. So how do people go about choosing funds? Well, we know from the evidence in cash flows that people even today rely heavily on Morningstar ratings, probably not as much as they did when I wrote my first books now 25 years ago, when Morningstar was viewed as kind of like, you know, the gurus out there and Everyone advertised how many star ratings they had. You couldn't pick up a newspaper or a magazine without that showing. You don't see that so much anymore Mm -hmm. because maybe people have learned what I wrote about in my book. But we do know still from the latest studies that I've seen, when Morningstar increases a rating, then cash tends to flow in. And when they lower a rating, then cash flows out. And so we know people even today rely you know, on Morningstar to make their investment decisions in terms of choosing which funds. But my guess is probably not as heavily, as I mentioned, as they would have 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So now the question is, does it work, right? Well, even Morningstar eventually <laughs> reported in a study that they found that the expense ratio of the fund was a better predictor than Morningstar's own ratings. And that's really kind of what exactly what you would expect if markets are efficient, Mm. which means that good stock pickers can't or are not likely to be able to exploit the market. And that means that dumb or naive stock pickers are not likely to get exploited because the collective wisdom of the market gets it about right. So if you just rank by expenses, you're likely to show the lower expense funds tend to perform better and the high expense funds tend to perform worse. And that's exactly what the research shows. So people who rely 
even today on Morningstar ratings are really just fooling themselves. There's no informational value in Morningstar's rating system. This is, you know, kind of distressing sometimes when you think about, well, first of all, all the money that goes into creating Morningstar ratings, number one. But number two, what's a person to do, right? I thought that I could rely on this. Okay, so maybe you run a, you're looking, you're looking at using these and you say, okay, Larry, I understand a five-star rating fund is not going to do that well in the future. But, hey, come on. What I'm going to do is tell my clients, I only look at four and five-star funds, right? Because maybe, okay, it's going to go out of favor down to four, but it's going to come back. And therefore, you know, is there any way to game this thing? Well, first of all, again, you have to ask yourself logically. Unfortunately, most people don't do this because they don't take the time to read books like mine or John Bogle's or William Bernstein's stuff. So they learn the evidence. But I think we did discuss this in one of the prior episodes. There are major consulting firms that consult with the largest investors in the world like California's public retirement, uh, pension retirement system. And, you know, many of the global sovereign wealth funds, even. These are firms like Goldman Sachs. And there are many other, you know, leading consulting firms that people rely on. And the evidence shows that the pension plans that hire them to help them choose the managers that they recommend sorry, the ones that they hire, right, to replace someone they're firing, the ones that they hired go on to underperform the very ones they fired. So they were better off never changing in the first place, but they would have been even better off just investing in index funds. So if these large pension plan consultants who, you know, people like Russell, which has a huge consulting business in, you know, probably hundreds of billions, you know, doing that. They have really smart people, you know, engaged and they do thousands of in-depth interviews. You could be sure they've got massive computer databases to help them analyze and think about every kind of way to massage those numbers, right? So they don't look at just one or two years, how consistent the fund is, you know, anything you could think of, you could be sure they've thought of, right? Mm -hmm. And they fail persistently. So why does somebody think that Morningstar, you know, who doesn't have the resources that these top pension plans have, is likely to do any better? Morningstar produces it, my guess is, because they know it sells. You know, so people buy it, so they keep producing it. But there really is no value in it, and investors are best served by simply avoiding actively managed funds. Choose the asset classes or factors that you want to invest in, and then do a little research, look for ones that are low cost and give you the most exposure per unit of cost to those factors or asset classes. So it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to choose the cheapest fund, because for example, you may want to invest in small value stocks. Mm. I'm just going to make this up. But let's say you decide to choose Vanguard's small value fund. Well, it might 
logically be the cheapest or certainly among the cheapest things, something like eight basis points. But it's really not small cap and it's not very valuing if you look at their median market cap and their PE ratios. I'm more willing to pay, say, 25 basis points for Avantis's small value fund because it's much smaller and much deeper value. And I believe that will far more than make up for the extra 18 basis points in expenses because the premiums in small value stocks have been about roughly, let's call it just 3% a year. So if you can get 20 basis or 20% more exposure, just to pick a number, that gives you 60 basis points in gain versus the 17 or 18 basis points you make. Now, I'm not saying that's the math, but that's the math that I do when I look to see which is the best vehicle to choose from. And, you know, and how you trade matters as well. Are you a patient trader? Do you get caught up in index rebalancing? And, you know, the high frequency traders are going to trade ahead of you if you're a pure replicator. So I try to avoid all funds that are pure replicators. Mm. For that reason, you can avoid that. And you want to look for funds that trade patiently to avoid the market impact costs we talked about. So, but generally just stop thinking about having your fortune in the stars. Morningstar won't help you. Neither will an advisor who's recommending actively managed funds. They're not likely to help you either. Well, so I have one little simple, easy question right at the end of this little one, which is, so why does Morningstar exist? Well, Morningstar does produce lots of good information. I use it all the time to compare mutual funds, to look at their valuation metrics, how much exposure they have to various factors. You have performance data you can look at. They've got a good team of people who do good research. So I mm -hmm. read a lot of their work. So I think Morningstar is a very good organization. I just don't use their star ratings. I use them for other things that yeah. they are good at. <laughs> That's a, a great point. You know, they do provide a, a great service when I want to compare funds for sure. Definitely helps. And as you say, some of the research they do is very, you know, excellent, you know, research. So it's just really a matter of you just can't put your faith in the stars. You know, that's just yeah. not the way to build a portfolio. Yeah, they have a lot of good people. Christine Benz, Jeffrey Patak, John Rackenthaler. You know, I read pretty much everything that mm -hmm. they write. So, yeah. you know, Morningstar is a good organization. Just ignore their star ratings. There you go. So now let's look at mistake number 19. I found this one, you know, fascinating. And it's, do you rely on misleading information? Tell us a little bit more about this one. Yeah. So this is really an interesting one. I, I point out in, in my book, I see if I will give it so we get the numbers correct here. There was, uh, you got to remember now the book is a, li a little bit older. So here's a, a study was done by Lipper Analytics. Now, they reported that the then existing 568 funds in that year earned 13.4%. Okay. 1996 comes along. So 10 years later, the funds that, quote, they reported existed 
1986, those returns had magically improved to 14.7%. Now, how can that happen? Their returns are unchanged, should be the same. The problem is about 7% of the mutual fund universe disappears every year, almost certainly because of poor performance and then cash leaves, and then they can't, the fund isn't large enough to cover the expenses that's needed to operate. So you have a problem when you look at data and rankings, how a fund ranked for the last 10 years, and they look better because <laughs> lots of debt funds, you know, are gone from the data now. So that's a, a problem that at least people should be aware of. There's a mutual fund graveyard in the sky, as I call it, where all those lousy returns get buried and fund families don't report them. So, you know, used to see ads, say, for Shearson Lehman, right? And they would say we have, you know, 50 of our 55 funds get four or five stars. They didn't tell you that another 15 funds, they closed and it disappeared and never were four or five star funds or weren't when they folded. This is true of lots of fund families. So you get misleading information. But the worst abuse that it shocks me that the SEC allows this is your fund family XYZ and you decide you know, we know there's this hot theme called AI, and we know people want to invest in it. So what we're going to do is take some of our money and we'll put $500,000 in five different funds that we will run in an incubator or a lab. It's real money, and it's running as a live fund. And then after a year or two years, and they have five different managers, or maybe they have the same manager running five different funds, right? And then they say, all right, let's throw out the returns of the four bad ones or the ones that didn't do it. And we'll just take public, the one that had the best returns, and then report that as if that was live. I mean, that's just unbelievable that that's allowed. If something's not public yet and you can't invest in it, these incubator funds should not be allowed in the databases. The same things happen, by the way, in hedge fund databases. But I think now the better ones at least scrub for that and will only report funds from the day they start giving you the data. You can't say, well, we've had the fund for three years. Here's the data. No, you're only giving it us today. So we'll start counting that data today. So that eliminates that incubator bias. And you think this is still going on? Well, as far as I know, maybe the rules may have changed. But as far as I know, incubator, well, we know it did go on when I wrote the book. Yeah. Which isn't all that all along. I mean, if they were smart, they just set up 100 funds, randomly select the content, and then pick the five that performed the best and then put a name on it and put a fund manager in charge of it and said, look at this performance. Well, that's basically what was happening. They would pick, you know, one or two or three, you know, not just one, but they picked two or three funds. Might have even been the same manager, might have been different managers. And they run them for a year or two and then take them public, whichever did the best. Mm. And I think that the thing that's even more prevalent is the idea of the disappearing funds 
like just knowing that there's, as you say, this graveyard. So you're looking at- 7%. Think about it. We have, let's just roughly 10,000 mutual funds out there. I mean, 700 are disappearing every year if there are that many. Mm -hmm. And if it's 5,000 today, it's still 350 are disappearing. How many ETFs that get created disappear? My favorite is, I wrote a piece about Jim Cramer. I've written about him a few times. Why people listen to him is beyond me. When his track record, we have published papers showing he doesn't add any value whatsoever. He may be entertaining. That's, you know, maybe your taste. There's some value there. (laughs) Yeah, there could be value there, but it doesn't mean you should follow his advice. So one guy got the brilliant idea to put out two Jim Cramer ETFs. One would buy the stocks he recommended and the other would short it. That just came out a few months ago. One of them has already folded. Can you guess which one? The buy one. That's right. (laughs) The other one, my guess is, will probably fold because he doesn't add or subtract. He just, you know, churns accounts and you end up losing money out by trading on his advice. You do all of this great summaries of research. And in order for a good academic paper to be a solid paper, it's got to account for survivorship bias as an example. And I know that the crisp data relative to stocks is very good at survivorship bias, you know, adjusting. And mutual fund data now. That's what I was going to ask you. The database does eliminate that survivorship bias now. And are there any academic reports that academic research that doesn't adjust for this? I mean, like everybody knows this now. Survivorship bias, is it fully accounted for now? I don't see it in any academic papers where you might find it is in industry publications. Right. Where someone just hasn't, you know, taken it on board because they don't really know what they're talking about. No, they know what they're talking about, but they know (laughs) if they report it correctly, they won't have a story to tell or won't Uh, be as good a story. Well, I think that's a that's a great breakdown on these two mistakes and things to look out for. It always keeps coming back to the point that you make over and over again, which is that, you know, low cost, passive. And I would add in what I've learned from you is exposure, low cost exposure, factor exposure funds sometimes can work where you can construct a portfolio of that. But for the average person that doesn't even have the capacity to do all that, low cost, broad base. There's nothing wrong with a good starting point being just own a U.S. total market fund with Vanguard and an international total market fund with Vanguard. And that'll give you broad exposure owning tens of thousands of different stocks all around the globe. And that's at least a good starting point. It'll be low cost, tax efficient. Now, you'll only have exposure to this one factor called market beta. And there are periods when market beta does poorly, long periods, where small and value stocks in a more profitable quality will do far better. But the reverse is also true. Mm. But on average, if you tilt your portfolio to these factors that we wrote about in my book with Andrew Burke and your complete guide to factor-based investing, 
on average, history says you are highly likely to come out ahead if you can stay disciplined and stay the course through the periods like 2017 through 20, when those factors, all of them pretty much did poorly. But, you know, everything goes through long periods of poor performance. The best example that I have to give people, always try to remind them, there are three periods where the S&P 500 underperformed T-bills for at least 13 years. From 29 to 43 is 15 years. So you took all that risk, lived through the depression, draw down as high as like 90% your loss, how to stick with it, and you still underperform treasury bills, whose yields were really low because of we had a depression and deflation. Again, from 66 to 82, underperformed T-bills, and just recently from 2000 to 12. So that's 45 of the now 90 four-year period. That's almost half of the time. That means in the other periods, you did got great returns, mm. but only if you were able to stay the course through those really bad times. So there is no cure. And a lot of people say, well, you know, if you just own the market, you're more likely to stay disciplined. You don't have this tracking there. I There may be some truth to it, but I think the people who make that case vastly overstate that because you'd have to wait 15 years, 13 years, 17 years and still stay disciplined. Let me give you one last great example. Mm. 1969 through 2008, that's 40 years, U.S. large growth stocks and U.S. small growth stocks underperform long-term treasury bonds. So for the long-term investor saying, hey, I've got long-term, I'm going to just buy longer-term bonds, get that term premium over T-bills, you were 40 years you were waiting and you didn't get a equity risk premium. So, you know, I'm not as big a fan as a lot, but it is still, you know, a worthy, you know, option for people to consider, at least get started, learn about markets, and then you can decide whether you want to tilt to these other factors that history suggests tend to provide better returns over the long term. And that puts the odds in your favor. And would it be correct to say that if you own a broad-based market cap weighted index fund that owns every stock in the market, that you are, in fact, exposed to all the different factors. It's not just market, but it's just that that exposure is market cap weighted exposure. No, that's correct. That's wrong. That's that's what's incorrect. That's where people go wrong. Because what happens is when you own the market, you own, let's say, small stocks and large stocks. Okay, so. The small cap factor is the return on small caps minus the return on large caps, okay? So I'll just make this up, but let's say large caps have got you 10% a year and small caps 12, so you got a 2% premium there. Mm. The problem is when you think about a factor loading, the small caps in your portfolio give you a positive exposure to the small cap factor, 
but the large stocks give you negative exposure to that factor. And the simple math says, by definition, you end up with a zero loading. The best way anyone can see that, you and I have talked before about the website portfoliovisualizer.com. And if you put in Vanguard's total stock market fund, or even the S&P 500, you'll find that it'll be virtually zero exposure to small cap. And the same thing is true with value stocks, because while the value stocks in the portfolio, which are about 20% by market cap, mm. is offset by the growth stocks you own in the portfolio, which give you negative exposure to the value effect, and therefore you have no net exposure. That's why I tell people when you own the market, you have exposure to only one factor, market beta. And that, that could be your decision that that's the portfolio you want to own. It's not what I own. And over the long term, it definitely has not been the most efficient. But if that helps you have the most discipline, I always tell people, Having the portfolio that you will stick with through thick and thin is far more important than choosing, quote, the perfect portfolio. So does that mean that the optimum factor strategy, let's say that, you know, some of the best guys are doing out there is to create a long, short strategy going long, small cap and short, large cap, and then providing the the difference between those two in that fund to investors, is that what it is? Or is it just oh, a, that's an I buy the small cap? No, so that's an interesting strategy. If you're long value and short growth, then you have no net exposure to market beta. All you get is the exposure to the factors. Now, that factor exposure might generate a return of, say, 3% a year. Well, that's not a great return, right? And small versus large might be 2% or maybe less. Today. But wouldn't that be pure factor exposure? Yes, that would be long short. I actually own a fund run by AQR that is a long short factor fund. It is long value and short growth, but it is also long short other factors like momentum so it goes long stocks with positive momentum, short stocks with negative momentum. It owns, in effect, something they call defensive, which is like quality. So it buys high quality and shorts junk, <laughs> right? And then it deals also with something in the literature called the carry trade, which buys high-yielding assets and sells low-yielding assets. All of these factors are well you know, written up in the literature with lots of supporting evidence for them. And now what you get is four different factors that are unique. And they also happen to provide exposure across four different asset classes. So it goes long value in stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. It goes long momentum. And so, so now you get, we think, an expected return with a premium of about maybe three, 4% over treasury bills with low correlation to everything. So and that's- is this like a multi-style, is that what that's called? Yes, it's a multi-style, long, short portfolio. So if you want exposure 
to the factors in a long-only portfolio, then you get exposure to market beta, and you get the size, value, profitability, quality, momentum, depending upon the fund. And that's how I invest. So I own, in my equity portfolio, I happen to own only small value funds, but they also are not just small value, but they have high amount of exposure to the profitability or quality factor. They screen out stocks with negative momentum. So if something is a growth stock and its price is crashing and now it's a cheap value stock, they won't buy it until that negative momentum ceases because the evidence shows it's likely to continue to keep falling for a while longer. So there again, that's why I don't invest in a pure index fund. That Vanguard's small value fund would buy that stock. Bridgeway's fund, Dimensional's fund, Avantis's funds would avoid those stocks until that negative momentum ceases. So if you want to be long only, you want to invest in asset class or factor-based funds that are long only, and then you can invest in these other factors in long short funds if that's something you want exposure to as well. And even a good long short fund is not going to always outperform because sometimes those factors are going to underperform. Even a mix of them could underperform for five or 10 years or 20 years. I'd say 10 years, you know, it's certainly possible, but there's no period that I'm aware of where it happened for 10 years, but three, four or five years. Certainly. I remember AQR's fund came out in like 2013, did very well the first few years. Then from 17 through 20, I think it did very poorly, lost money. And the last three years, it's done spectacular. But a lot of people weren't there anymore. They watched the first three years and said, oh, this looks good. I'll buy now. So they didn't get those good returns early, which I got. I then rebalanced and sold some of them. Then they did poorly. So I was buying more. And in 20. 21 of the fund was up like 25% in mm. 2022 is up again, like 25%. And it's doing well again this year, up something last I look like six or something like that. Mm. But I, you know, I think that fund over the long term, is going to hopefully generate several percent above the T-bill rate and give me low correlation to everything else. So yeah. 2022 while stocks and bonds were getting killed, that fund was up well over 20%. But other years, the market was way up and it went down. But that's what you want in a portfolio. You want things that will perform differently. But you better be able to stay the course and buy more when it does poorly. Mm. Yeah, that's the key. You try to trade it right. Otherwise, you get... Not trade it. Not trade your it. your asset allocation constant. Yep. Fantastic. Well, another great discussion, Larry. I want to thank you for this discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. As always, it's super valuable. For listeners out there who want to keep up with all that Larry is doing, and he does quite a bit, you can follow him on Twitter at Larry Swedro or at LinkedIn. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.